0: Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing, hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. When we first started this podcast, one of the Episodes that we threw away not because the content was bad, but because we were terrible. Was this Corey Hofstein posted a question on Twitter a few months ago, yeah. something along the lines of "What are you a hundred percent certain on in terms of financial markets going forward?" I don't remember exactly how he posed the question, but that was sort of the gist of it. And you and I had something of an epiphany this week. Maybe that's too strong of a word, but why don't you why don't you share what we feel really confident about going forward?
1: One of the things that we've done a lot of work on over the years is volatility regimes in the market. And and we're not exactly... It's not like we came up with this ourselves. We're kind of piggybacking on the work of other people that came before us. But the idea that volatility begets more volatility in the markets. And that's something that just because of human nature that I'm fairly sure of. So if you look at the gains and losses on a daily basis since October 10th alone, there's been a a down day of more than 3%, a down day of more than 2%, up 1.4%, up over 2%, down 1.4%, down 3% up almost 2%, down almost 2%, up 1%, and then now up over 1.5% today so far. So I think the idea is that bad things happen during bad markets. And that's because of the human inability to handle losses and to panic in both directions when things are going bad.
0: Well, and, and also not just bad things happen in bad markets, but we get bigger bounces, bigger updates in bad markets. So I wrote a post last week showing the average daily return in a bull market, the average update, the average down day, and the average up and down day in a bear market, and the average update in a bear market is actually one point one percent whereas in a, in a bull market it 's only zero point six five percent something along those lines so both up and down you get you get higher highs and higher lows is what I wrote in the article
1: and it 's kind of a hard thing for people to wrap their minds around. I think most people would assume when the stock market is going up that stocks must be just doing great, but it's it 's just little tiny gains here and there. And then when stocks go down, you have these big down days, but you also have these big up days, which kind of make it so irritating for anyone trying to make money during a down market.
0: Yeah, so there are few iron laws in finance, but we feel like this is one thing that will persist pretty much forever. And I don't see yeah. I don't see how that could be different.
1: Right. I mean there's no there's no set stopwatch to it or something that it says that volatility will go for as long as it goes and so there's there's no timing on it but the, the idea that volatility begets volatility I, I think yeah that's something that I would that, that I'd like to see that would never go away in the markets
0: so let's move on to some economic data that came out last week Q3 GDP showed 3.5 percent annualized growth which is two back-to-back quarters of really pretty strong economic growth so take it from the journal third quarter. Corporate earnings have been largely positive, with some 80% of reporting S&P 500 firms posting profits that exceeded Wall Street's expectations. Sales performance has been more mixed, with more than a third of firms so far missing revenue projections. And what's really different about the past few weeks of earnings season is that even sales and particularly earnings that are beating are not enough. So, FactSet has this great chart showing the S&P 500 companies reporting positive EPS surprises for Q3 2018 are seeing their largest average price decline since Q2 2011. So S&P 500 companies that are beating EPS are having an average price decline of negative 1.5% on that next day. And that is pretty troubling.
1: So it's almost like the expectation of the expectations have gotten too far out of whack. And even these companies that are beating aren't beating by what some people would want them to be so they're getting re they're getting rejiggered down.
0: Right. And Dave, I'm sorry, I don't know if it's is Benoît or Benoit tweeted.
1: Benoit sounds a, a lot cooler. Yeah. Uh,
0: Sign of how crazy this tech market is. Front page of Wall Street Journal highlights these quote disappointing results. Amazon revenue up 29% to 56 billion. Google search revenue up 22% to 27 billion. But both missed Wall Street expectations by less than 1%. Expectations are in the stratosphere. I
1: think this is one of the reasons that investing is so hard because it's, it's not good or bad, but better than worse. And, and even sometimes trying to figure out that better and worse, like trying to figure out what's priced into a market or a stock is, is so difficult to do. And it, it's easy to like think about this second level thinking from Howard Marks, but getting to that point where you really understand what is being priced in and what's not is so difficult to do.
0: Yeah. And you. I mean, of course, you only find out after. And I wrote about this in my book that and Mobison has written a lot about the parallels between horse betting and the stock market. But when you are betting on a horse, you might know that probably one of these three horses are going to win. However, the odds are terrible. So you bet five to win one, right? Or the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, they're probably going to win the championship. They're probably going to win, but the payout is lousy. In the stock market, you don't see the odds. You don't like see the expectations um, embedded in the price until after the fact.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's why like the gambling metaphors don't really work because if you go into a casino, you can have a pretty good idea what your odds are. In the market, you have no idea. You can use probabilities, but th- there's no set thing. So that's why when trying to figure out the relationship between the economy and the stock market, it's so hard because, I mean, a lot of times the stock market is is taking the pulse and they're they're. They're thinking ahead, who knows how far in advance. And so it's just a resetting of expectations, but it's hard for people to know what those implied expectations are to begin with. Yep. So it, it's difficult to do.
0: We'll get to your wages thing in a minute. But two things that stood out to me, the Wall Street Journal did this really great graphic that breaks down different components of GDP. And one of the things that they said that caught my eye was, for the six months between April and September, defense spending rose at its fastest pace since 2009. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And then also they showed that business investment is falling. And the image says a lot. So I'm, we'll just we'll, we'll put this in the show notes.
1: Okay. So basically it says rising oil prices are making people spend less in the energy sector. Okay. So, so I went to a little diner this weekend and posted kind of a little what I thought was a joke on Twitter. And it basically said that this diner is going to be closing on all Mondays because there's a shortage of labor. And I just put it out there on Twitter And it kind of actually made me realize I just did it kind of as a funny thing. I said, This is what a 3.7% unemployment rate looks like. And I got so many comments on this thing. A lot of them were political in nature, which made no sense. But the other ones were just how difficult it can be to figure out this idea between wages and labor and economic growth and what it all means. And so, of course, a million people said, Well, if they just raise their wages, then they could find more workers. But I don't think it's always quite that easy. It's obviously a business owner would consider that before deciding to shut down. There's, obviously, they they would have considered that. So it's interesting this idea of like inflation and wages, how difficult it can be when you think about it on an individual business level. Because of course, people think about these things before they pull the trigger and decide to not have any revenue for a day or not any payments to, to their employees. So, but I, you are seeing signs of the, this. Is just my anecdotal economic data, but it's there's a lot of manufacturing in West Michigan, and a lot of these manufacturing companies are have, having to offer bonuses to people for the jobs on the floor, the hourly workers, just to, just to get them in, in the door. And then they're having to offer bonuses three months in it three months later for staying on the job. So they're having that hard of a time keeping people. So it's interesting because a few years ago all these people were worried about keeping their job in the first place and now they're having a hard time keeping employees.
0: Well there is obviously a push and pull between labor and capital and it's hard to know what drives the other. Uh, it's sort of like people think that the economy drives the stock market and certainly there's i mean there's a lot of nuance but also you can make the case that like in certain in certain instances the stock market actually drives the economy
1: yes and it's kind of interesting because if you have this capital versus labor debate capital has won hands down for the past 3 decades or so probably so i think it's almost like people don't know what to do now that maybe some people in the labor force have some more bargaining power And so companies are having a hard time figuring it out. So,
0: taking a step back, I guess one of the things that I didn't lead with that I was meaning to was that the economy is so strong, maybe it's even overheating, right? Shortage of workers, uh, GDP is very strong. And yet, stocks are having a fairly tough time right now. And I think that it's confusing for some people, but the stock market is looking forward right? And it's not not always right. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going through a recession. But this economic data that we're getting is, by definition, backwards looking.
1: Yeah. And things were just the opposite a few years ago, where people were saying, how is the stock market booming so well when the economy really isn't taking off that much? And now we've kind of reversed roles a little bit. So yeah, it should be interesting to see if this is just a little minor change in expectations or a huge change based on something that may happen.
0: So where is the stock market going, Ben?
1: I have no idea, Michael.
0: Uh, I was was trying to lay you up for a segue into your next post.
1: Okay. So I wrote a post last week, and I I looked at the probabilities of of the stock market falling. And I went back to 1928. And so I said, when stocks fall 10%, what happens then? And I found roughly 60% of the time, they didn't fall any further than 20%. So the majority of the time, stocks are just in a correction when they fall double digits. And, but I mean, 40% of the time is is not nothing. So this is since the late 1920s. So let's say 60% of the time, stocks fall between 10 and 20% when they fall double digits. And the other 40% of the time, they fall into a bear market.
0: Yeah. So we'll link to that in the notes, but you broke it down further. Like what happens when it falls 20? What's probability of falling more? And is this a huge sample? No. But is this reasonable to at least frame expectations. I think so.
1: And it's also it helps. I, I showed the average number of days that it lasts. So anytime the stock market has dropped over the last 90 years, double digits, in, but fallen less than 20%, let's say this is just a run of the mill correction, it still lasts at 132 days on average from peak to trough. So that's uh, this, it's only been a couple of weeks so far. So maybe things happen faster now in the markets because of technology and the influence of computers and algorithms. But the majority of the time, these things take some time.
0: I feel like these data these statistics are so useless even though they're interesting because 132 days doesn't sound like that long a period of time you're like all right what's you know what's the big deal so it's it's a couple of months but each one of those days can be a grueling fight to survive
1: yes it's not yeah it's no fun in your... plus a lot of times like we said when stocks are falling you get these big up days and they give people hope and it's like okay I see light at the end of the tunnel right. and then your hopes are dashed so it's yeah it's never easy So I wrote another piece this week about the psychology of sitting in cash and what to do when you're staring the face of one of these corrections and you have some cash. And I think I I still get a lot of emails from people saying, I I just couldn't pull the trigger. I've been sitting in cash since 2009, 2012, whatever it is. I I got out of the market. And I think some of the time you'd think now is like, oh, it's a fat pitch. Things are going down. You should be able to find a lot of deals. But I think it's almost harder to buy when stocks start falling because cash becomes like a gateway drug to just stick sticking with it. And it's like an addiction.
0: Well, you know why it doesn't make it any easier to pull the trigger? Why? Because you would assume it becomes easier to buy stocks when they're falling, but cash is a comfortable place to be during a correction. It's like you're tucked in under your warm comfort on a freezing Saturday morning in the winter and you never want to get out of bed. I thought that was... a And that, and that was what Ben wrote. I thought that was a really great way to to frame this.
1: Yes, but I don't. I don't have that ability anymore to stay in my bed on a warm set or on a cold Saturday morning because my kids are waking me up so early. But a man can dream. But yeah, I think there's never a good or bad time. I think to invest and as as much as you want to use like the sayings of some of these great investors, you can look back at the averages in the past times when it made sense to put money to work. But if you take an extreme position in the market and sit in it for a long time, it just becomes harder and harder to act. And so hold on, let, let me let, let, to,
0: let me challenge you just for a moment. Okay. Are you telling me that Jesse Livermore quotes do not add alpha to your
1: portfolio in a bear market uh, only if you have a hashtag when you after you say them I, I think that's that's the thing people want to like find a margin of safety and a fat pitch but that sounds so much easier in a quote from Buffett or Benjamin Graham than it does to actually do something because of these expectations we're talking about well yeah, okay I'll, yeah. I'll put money in it when stocks fall twenty percent but what if they fall another 20 percent from there then what do I do right?
0: so getting out is easy. I think getting back in is extremely difficult because let, let's say that you do nail it, right? You you sell at the exact top and then stocks fall 20%. Are you like dying to get back in? Of course you're not because you think they're going to fall another 40%. So I think the key is having a rules-based system to get back into the market. And there was an article in Bloomberg last week talking about Betterment and they said that 60% of Betterment's customers use automated deposits, which is a really good way to at least dampen some of the emotion that is involved with investing through tough times.
1: This was a pretty good profile. They also said... So Betterment started in 2010. And it says, since then, the company has attracted about 400,000 customers all in the US who have an average of $40,000 in the Betterment account. And it's kind of funny because when robo-advisors first burst onto the scene, everyone was worried about, are they going to take over for financial advisors? And I think a lot of advisors put these these systems down for whatever reason, maybe because they were a little nervous. But I think the great thing about Betterment is that they are serving an underserved market that was never being paid attention to in the past. And so people with forty grand in their accounts, for the most part, are not going to be taken by any financial advisor in the country. But Betterment will take them and give them a simple, low-cost, low-fee, really easily elegant technological way of putting their money to work in the market. And I think it's great.
0: Here, here. All right. There was an article over the weekend in Barron's written by Jack Ho, and I think he said some really great things that I'm going to read. He said, quote, accurately predicting what the stock market will do next year is impossible. Inaccurately predicting it is easy. I thought that was pretty good. He also said the subject of whether stock prices are normal or not is fraught with analytical slush puddles. I also thought that was pretty good. But I thought that this was a really important point that he makes. He said The rest might want to do some late cycle soul searching. If the Dow Jones Industrial Average were to drop, say, another 3,000 points in a hurry, would you dump everything? If so, consider quietly panicking now, just a little, while other investors are buying on the dips. Now, I think that that is actually pretty decent advice. If you you ask yourself that question, if the Dow drops another 3,000 points or or falls another X percent, whatever it is, are you going to be extremely uncomfortable and, and potentially do something rash like press a button that you shouldn't be pressing. If that's the case, then it's not an all-in or all-out decision. Then just maybe alter your asset allocation a little bit. If you're 60% stocks, um, maybe take it down to 50 or 45 or whatever that number is that allows you to stay the course if and when this thing gets worse. And it might not, right? This might be the bottom and it might be okay. But like these are the questions that you need to be asking. And I think the, the idea that you maybe panic a little bit is a lot better advice than hoping this thing turns around.
1: So if you're going to panic, make sure you panic early.
0: And no, so, but but seriously, but panic yeah, a little,
1: right? No, I, I think I think that. And so, Jonathan Clements posted a tweet last week. I thought was pretty good. He's a former Wall Street Journal writer, and he, he said, "Anytime stocks start to fall, I put three questions up that ask people: How much cash do you need from your portfolio in the next five years? What's the value below which you never want your portfolio to fall? And how much will you save in the years ahead?" I think the number two question is is really good. You could because you could back into the type of losses that you could expect if you never want to see your portfolio fall beyond a certain amount and and in some ways that thinking that way caps your upside in a lot of ways but if you're more worried about you know protecting your capital than anything that that's kind of something you can back into to figure out you know how much pain you can really take
0: yeah i think that's a really great way to frame it people should be people are not should be people are much more likely to make a mistake on the downside. Like, Yes, people will chase and and do something stupid when stocks are are flying. But the majority of the mistakes, I think, and actually maybe I'm second guessing myself here, are (laughs) probably on the downside.
1: Are we going to come back next (laughs) week and say I changed my mind?
0: So there was an article in Barron's, uh, investors are fleeing bond funds. And I thought this was really interesting that investors are behaving in bonds, and this is very broadly speaking, but the same way that they do with stocks. So when stocks go down a lot, expected returns go up, But people are selling stocks when they should not be. Similarly, when interest rates are going up and prices are going down, people are selling bonds when literally return expectations are going higher. Like not with stocks, it's a little bit more squishy right? Because expectation returns are going up, but who the hell really knows? With bonds, like you can measure. No, literally, your expected returns are going up. So they said that this month is on track to be the worst one for bond outflows in almost three years. This month through October 19th, clients pulled $23.6 billion from mutual funds, blah, 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 blah. What do you say, Ben?
1: I I think that it makes sense because this is how the investor psyche works. When they see people see losses on their statements, they sell first and ask questions later. And it's, interest, it's interesting because both bonds and stocks are now having a difficult time. So I wonder how this tug of war is going to work if the stock market correction continues. And bonds, I, I looked, bonds over the last month since stocks peaked out are basically flat, maybe down a few basis points here or there. So you wonder if, if this will reverse course if stocks continue to go down. But I think part of the, the problem for bond investors is most people assume that they're never going to lose money in their bonds. And so when interest rates do rise and they see some short-term losses, I think people flip out.
0: Right. Because they treat it like cash in their head.
1: Yeah. So I think maybe in some ways, people expect stock market losses now more readily than bonds. And so it's easier to overreact in bonds. But I agree with you that you know, people have gotten a raise in their bond funds lately, even though they haven't seen it yet. It, it's just going to happen in the future because those expected returns are higher because interest rates are higher.
0: Right, so earlier in the year, in February, when stocks were selling off, I think, and no way to prove this, but I think that interest rates going up and bonds going down quite a bit was dragging down the market. Like people were afraid that rates were going to go up so much, and then I guess they did. I mean, rates are significantly higher today than they were in February, but now on this on the big down days for stocks, bonds are holding up fairly okay.
1: Yes, which is w- what you'd hope for in a diversified portfolio that that safe piece of your portfolio is protecting. In the short term when stocks go down. Okay. I got a survey of the week here from Jason Zwag. He wrote a piece about because they had the mega millions Powerball lottery going on. By the way, did you buy a ticket? My wife did. Do you okay. Did you? No, we didn't we didn't bother. Hold hold on. My that in- was
0: you shook your head like the, are you sure?
1: Yeah, no. We okay. we I mean, whatever teach their own. If people want to do that, I, I'm not going to judge, but that, I don't know. It sounds I very just,
0: It sounds very judgy.
1: I mean, is there a way to buy them online so I don't have to go into like a Seven Eleven to get one? Yeah. That, that's the biggest thing for me. It's just the the time it takes to get it. And I'd look like an idiot because I don't know how to do it because I don't do it very often. But anyway, he found in one British survey, 22% of the people said that they would win the national lottery jackpot <laughs> in their lifetime. Uh. And he was he was kind of talking about the gambler mindset and where that comes from. So yeah, not quite. All right. Okay, so I read something of a mind blowing piece this week from Russ Roberts. And Roberts, do you ever listen to his podcast? Here he kind and there. Of talks? Here and there. Yeah, I kind of I kind of pick and choose based on the guess. but he's he's a really sharp guy. And his piece was called "Do the Rich Capture All the Gains from Economic Growth?" And one of the big themes in the last, I'd say, decade or so, and it's really been growing in the last few years, is the fact that. All the gains are going to the very wealthy and mostly the 1%, and everyone else is just getting left behind. And so he shares a stat in here from Thomas Piketty, who was one of the people who really brought this idea to the forefront. And he said, Piketty said, income stagnated for the bottom 50% of earners over the last 30 or 40 years. And for this group, the average pretext income was $16,000 in 1980, expressed in 2014 dollars using the National Income Deflator, and it's still 16200 in 2014. So basically after accounting for inflation, people on the bottom 50% made no gains in their income level. And Robert says, this all sounds terrible. And obviously, this is not the way you want things to work, but it doesn't really look at the data correctly. So what Robert's did was look at, instead of just looking at things sectioned out by percentiles or deciles of people making money, he looked at the actual people. And so one of the studies said, 70% of children born in 1980 into the bottom decile exceed their parents' income in 2014, and those born in the top 10%, only 33% exceed their parents' income. So I shared this with you, and we were both kind of blown away at the some of the different studies in here.
0: Yeah. Is this sort of regression to the mean a little bit?
1: I think that's that's probably what it is. So the idea is you can look at the different income levels by strata or whatever, but it doesn't really tell you anything unless you look at the people within the the group. So while yes, the income at those levels has not changed much, the people within those those different levels have changed a lot. And he found that the children from the poorest families had the largest absolute gains, and the children in the top quintile did no better or worse than their parents once those children become adults. So he actually found the children from the poorest families, when they actually followed these people through the decades, ended up twice as well off as their parents when they became adults. So a lot of these people, when they're young, start off in the lower income brackets, but actually are able to pull themselves out of it. And so when you look at the actual individual people and families and households, it tells a different story than looking just at the income breakdowns.
0: Yes. So this is, I think, how to perfectly describe what's going on. He wrote, the pessimistic story based on comparing snapshots of the economy at two different points in time misses the underlying dynamism of the American economy and does not accurately measure how workers at different places in the income distribution are doing over time. And you're right. This was something of a, of a mind-blowing thing because when you think about it, it really does make a lot of sense that, almost by definition, people that got into the one percent, of course, did disproportionately better than people in the bottom twenty percent. But that group is changing over time. And how did people that were in the bottom twenty percent twenty years ago do compared to compare people that were in the top top percentile?
1: Yeah, I've never seen he presented a handful of studies in here, so it's definitely worth reading the piece. And I'd never seen it presented this way, and it kind of changed my mind, I think, in some ways. And maybe I'm sure you could poke holes in some of these studies as well, just like you can poke holes in the other ones. But it shows that there needs to be a little more nuance to this conversation. And it's not it's not so black and white when you just look at the income levels.
0: Yes. That is probably the key takeaway because I sort of had a battle in my head going on. Like, wait a minute, how can this really be? It doesn't make sense. But to your point, it's not so black and white either What with what he's saying versus what the... Uh, constant narrative has been that all the gains are going to the top one percent.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. This was the the way that he looked at this was it's it was very unique, and I'd never seen it presented this way. So definitely worth the read. Okay, apparently Uber is going public. That sounds like it's the worst kept secret on the markets these days, and they think that some of the talk behind the scenes is a hundred twenty billion dollar valuation. Scott Galloway wrote about this in his weekly newsletter. He said that would make Uber's valuation greater than the entire value of the U.S. airline industry or the U.S. auto industry, excluding Tesla. And I think it's funny he excluded Tesla there because does that assume Tesla is going to go out of business soon? Is that what he's saying? Or? No, I'm just kidding. So w- what do you think? Uber being valued, let's say, let's say it comes out at $120 billion. That may be on the high side of things. But is that ridiculous or is that is it too soon to tell?
0: My totally uninformed opinion is that I can't imagine any growth rate that can justify that.
1: Okay. See my my way of thinking is it's either brilliant like Facebook or it's asinine and it's going to be like the cover indicator in a few years that people are going to go see. Uber came public and that was you know ridiculous. I I honestly have no idea. Well, it's I- it's like. There, I, I agree with you that there, the expectations embedded in a valuation that high are, are exceedingly high.
0: The counterpoint to my, to my point was that we spoke a few weeks ago about thinking in terms of market capitalization, how that could be a really bad anchor because it's just a number. Um, So I think, mm-hmm. however, when you frame it that it's greater than the value of the airline industry or the auto industry, that gives a little bit of a way to compare it. But I would have said the same thing about Facebook at hundred billion dollars when it came public and now it's four hundred billion dollars and so it doesn't mean that this makes sense, but my knee jerk reaction is that this doesn't make any sense at all.
1: yeah, I think I'd be leaning that way as well, but I yeah and it seems like there's a lot of other tech companies that could come in and do this, but I sure you could have said that like you said the same thing about Facebook so there there is like leave ten percent maybe in this for wiggle room in this, but it seems exceedingly high and I feel like if this would have come public when the markets were still doing well, this would have been like everyone would have been said this was a screaming sell signal for the market yeah, because yeah. it's yeah, it's it's out of this world.
0: So so last week we spoke on the podcast about about some of the housing related numbers going on and B spoke had a good thread that I just wanted to share. They said the last four months of housing data relative to expectations, which is the key, has been beyond bad existing home sales have missed expectations for six straight months. New home sales have missed expectations for four straight months. Housing starts weaker than expected in three of the last four months. And building permits weaker than expected in three of the last four months. So economic data is actually the type of thing, unlike the stock market, well, I guess you see what expectations are for... You could see like whisper numbers for earnings estimates, but certainly the economic data, you actually do see the expectations ahead of time.
1: Whisper numbers, is that a scientific phrase? No that's a real thing. Is that. Okay, I know. So but this is the reason why the home builder stocks that we talked about last week have just been getting crushed because expectations have been being missed left and right. Is that what we're saying.
0: That's what we're saying. And
1: one of the, and actually one of the stocks that you profiled last week was it Mohawk? That's one you're talking about? Yeah. Was down like 25% last week. So even after we highlighted some of the the losses that i had already seen, it got crushed again after reporting some numbers that people didn't like.
0: Before we move on to listener questions, let's talk quickly about the annuity article.
1: Okay. So the Wall Street Journal had an article about sales of annuities. And in some ways, reading this kind of made me feel like I was getting thrown back to the 1990s. I can't believe some of this stuff still exists. So they talked about a woman who was... Taken to a financial product sales because they were giving away free steaks and chocolates. Is that it? They, they gave a free dinner to sell annuities.
0: And she liked the idea of not losing principal.
1: Yes. So it, it says this woman invested much of her savings in annuities several years ago after getting a flyer in the mail for dinner at a nice local restaurant with an annuity salesman. I can't believe that people still buy their financial products this way, but I guess, I guess that's how it works. And they also kind of made the point that when the fiduciary rule got rolled back, there's now a huge influx of jobs for annuity salesmen and also the sales of them have gone through the roof.
0: So the basic uh, an annuity is an insurance product that protects you against the risk of outliving your money. I don't necessarily think that it's an investment although I guess it has to be bucketed that way, but it's an insurance product, which is fine. I I don't think it's necessary that annuities are good or bad. It's all like, you know, like everything else, it's how they're how they're sold and how they're described. And the article said something that's just like a, an amazing thing that needs to be written. The annuity's resurrection stems from the demise of the Labor Department's fiduciary rule, an Obama-era proposal that would have required brokers who oversee retirement savings to act in their clients' best interests.
1: Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, like you said, that there's there's good ways to do this and bad. And for a lot of people, an annuity probably is the right option because they don't have the financial resources to be able to provide a steady stream of income. But a lot of the incentives in this world are structured the wrong way and it gets people to sell them rather than buy them. And it's... Yeah, I think there's just a lot of misinformation. And these things are so complex. Some people in the industry don't understand how they work.
0: And there are... I mean, people are scared in general. People are scared. And the idea of selling somebody principal preservation is so easy. So I went to the comment section just to see what was going on because these are these are pretty polarizing topics, and there was a 130 comments. So I just pulled three of them that were that stood out. Quote: The last one I went to the salesman compared his annuities return to the S and P 500 less dividends, which was a patently deceptive comparison. We would agree. Another one was the main thing that bothers me about annuities is that they called the annual cash flow income. The annual cash flow is not income; it is mostly return of capital. Another good distinction. And then lastly, somebody said, don't make your long-term investment decisions based on a dinner.
1: (laughs) That's that's a pretty good rule of thumb. That's not bad. Okay. Let's get to some listener questions. So someone called us out on Twitter because we always are talking about the long-term ramifications of the market and how it's good to be a long-term thinker. So they said, in the UK, if you invested in the FTSE 100 20 years ago, your investment has gone nowhere. Do you entertain this as a serious possibility for U.S. indices going forward? And if not, why not? And i I looked at this. Uh, I looked at the MSCI UK, UK index over the last twenty years, and it's up four percent a year. So I suppose it could be structured a little differently than the FTSE, but maybe this was just on a price basis, or maybe that has something to do with the currency fluctuations. But whatever, that, that's still not a great return. So, so what do you think? I guess there's never been a time where the U.S. the S P five hundred has a loss over 20 years. Total return. At least in a total return. It's always been positive. Yes. So
0: Now, to answer this question directly, I 100% entertain this as a serious possibility. Do I think it's probable? No. Do I think it's possible? Of course it's possible. And the idea that US stocks might have a lousy 20-year return, well, that's what risk is, right? I mean, that is what risk is. You might not get returns. But the fact that this person is saying that UK stocks had a 20-year flat return, well, to me, that screams to having a globally diversified portfolio because we might have a 20-year lost two-decade period. I have no idea. I don't think that's it's not what I would bet on, but it's certainly possible.
1: One of the reasons that you do diversify globally, and because people always are quick to point out the Japan scenario where they went nowhere for a long time, I don't think the idea of diversifying globally is necessarily to increase your risk-adjusted returns. I think it's to get rid of these outlier situations. So you don't have to have a Greece or a Japan on your hands. Because you're, if you're overweighted or exclusively in one of those markets, and you do have this scenario that is, that is awful, then yeah, that's why you diversify. Because you don't want to be stuck in that situation in an extreme position.
0: But the people that are always talking about this, yeah, of course it's possible. But what's the alternative? Do you not invest do you not right. save money? Do you not defer current consumption in the hopes of a better tomorrow to give yourself a, a, a cushion, a little bit of breathing room in the event that something really lousy happens? Like, what is the alternative?
1: Exactly. Put, Do you yeah, hoard put cash your money in the mattress.
0: Do you hoard cash and then lock in lower real returns? Because I guarantee you that inflation will probably be above zero. Well, I can't guarantee anything, but I would think that there's a much greater pos- probability of inflation being positive over the next 20 years than stocks being negative.
1: Right. Yes. That's why I like to say like a, a bad plan is better than no plan at all. So you have to do something. You have to invest somehow. And that's what I think a lot of people have lost out in the last few years is that you have all these doom and gloom people saying the markets are overvalued, interest rates are too low. So it's like, well, what's the alternative?
0: A lot of financial advisors are moving to... Using third-party asset managers or models created and managed by investment companies, all things considered, is the end client better off in the long run working with an advisor that pick their own allocations or outsources? I don't think that this could be answered. I mean, I think that if, if you are a CFP and you are really you focus on planning, then it's probably not a bad thing at all to outsource the investment side of it. Are you better off working with an investment advisor who does this in-house? I don't know. I think that there's, you know, that's so case specific. Ben, do you have any like strong feelings on this?
1: It's probably good to understand where your strengths lie. And obviously, there's probably some outsource options that are better and there's some in house ones that are better. It depends on a lot on the the execution, I suppose. But I mean, the thing you can outsource is your understanding. So the advisor has to understand what they're getting into. And then the client has to understand that too. If you're going to outsource, that you know exactly where you're getting yourself into and you're not just taking what the investment firm or company or strategy is using uh so I think you have to understand exactly what you're getting into if you're going to outsource. What do you recommend? Okay. Let's see. This week I read Atomic Habits by James Clear. He he's kind of newish to me, but I guess he's been around for a while as as a habit guy. I I enjoyed the book. I can hear in your
0: tone that you skimmed it.
1: No, I actually read it and I finished it pretty quickly. I thought it was very, like the first two chapters like the way he described habits and how they're formed and what they mean, and the whole idea of like process over outcomes. Like the first two chapters, like, were amazing. I thought it was borderline motivational book, and that always kind of turns me that's off your, a little that's bit.
0: Your, that's your kryptonite.
1: It, yeah, it's a little too motivate. And, and but I, I mean, it was really good. The guy, he's really smart. He tells a lot of good stories. There's a lot of good research. I, have you ever read The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg? No. I think if if you're deciding between a habit book, that's probably I like that one a little better. But this was good. I'd say 90% of it was good, 10% too motivational for me, but I I still enjoyed it. So this week, we tried out one of those meal delivery services. Have you ever used those before? Kind of like a Blue Apron. There's a million of them now. Have you ever done it before? Nope. Okay. Uh, Thumbs down, I think. It was actually the food was pretty good, but for the price you pay, it wasn't enough food for me. Like I could have eaten a whole portion, both double portions for myself. So the food was good. I think the only thing it really saves you on is time going to the grocery store because it still took like a half hour to cook and put all the ingredients together. Then what is the point? The point is it saves you time. I know, that's that's kind of what my thought was because it t- it took a while, like, I'm not a big cook and I followed the instructions and I'm chopping stuff up and I'm mixing stuff up and I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't saving me any time at all. It just saves you time going to the store. There's, so a, I, I scene, I,
0: there's a scene in Alien Resurrection.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: where the guy puts like a cube under a machine and it just gets zapped and it turns into like scotch.
1: That'd be great. See that that's about the extent of my cooking ability. Yeah, so
0: why would you order something that's packaged and then you got to take half an hour to cook it?
1: I I totally agree. That's what I'm like, okay, this like any any of them you sign up for you get like 50% off the first one. So I'm like, all right, we'll try one. But I'd say Eh, unless you're really straining for time and don't want to go to the grocery store, it's probably not worth it. And finally, we started bodyguard on Netflix. I think a few listeners actually recommended this it lo- one. It was a British, the a British looks, show. Looks quite good. The, we were two episodes in and By the way, do, do my need, favorite, do, do you need subtitles? <laughs> no, it's not, uh, not like snatch. Uh, I liked it. Like the first, very first scene of the movie of the show, like ten minutes in, it immediately brings you in, and I don't think you can give up. And the the best part about it, it's only six episodes. Like Uh, if I can, that's perfect. Right when I saw that, I'm like, that is a perfect amount. Like if all shows were six episodes, okay, that's like the perfect amount of yes. And it's really good. It's with Rob Stark from Game of Thrones. Speaking of six episodes,
0: the new I don't even know if it's new anymore, but the Rob Delaney show, Catastrophe. I didn't see the third season. Did you? Because that's six episodes.
1: Yes, I'm I'm caught up as far as it it is. So you Unless saw the third season. Yes. Okay. third season. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I have not seen it yet.
0: So you recommended forever last week. What did you think? I took you up on it. Okay. I was into it, and then, like, did you finish the season? Yes. Is it good?
1: I like the end. It's is a it weird, good? It's an odd show. Is it good? I, I, yes, yes, I liked it.
0: Okay, because I was like into it. Where is this going? It's sort of boring, but I want to see more. And then the fourth episode, the one with the mom from Forty Year Old Virgin. Yes. Nothing happened.
1: Yeah, that's true. I I, still I hold you
0: personally responsible.
1: Give. I'd say keep going. There, well, going I had a lot of that feeling too. Like it's. I'm already halfway. It's kind done of. Like, yeah, it's kind of boring, but it's unique. I'd say keep keep going.
0: Okay, I do like the concept, so I'm gonna I'm gonna see it through. Okay. Okay, and then did you watch the Adam Sandler stand up?
1: Not yet. Worth it?
0: I don't think so. Really? So, okay. I've watched it like I've I've watched it 3 times. Not that I've seen it 3 times at full, but I've like pressed p- play and stop 3 separate times.
1: Ah, uh, that's not a good sign.
0: Um, it's sort of weird like he's kind of old okay and i don't know it's just it's weird to see him doing like hit the same shtick, sort of from billy madison like the you know like yeah it's just a little it's
1: it's probably i'll probably, I'll probably try it but I, f- I feel like we've got a lot of d recommendations this week
0: well i have another d recommendation okay all right so i've tried the audible thing and i thought to myself i've always wanted to read like the classics so i thought that i would start with dracula it was only a dollar I don't have the annual subscription to Audible, so I thought that I would start with Dracula, and I have stuck in there longer than I should have. I probably have listened to five hours already, and it's sort of like Old English. So Bram Stoker was Irish, and I think he wrote this in the late 1800s. So not only is it like sort of a different language, but I'm ha- like I'm finding it so boring, and I'm I'm literally reading the Cliff's Notes while listening to it, and I still can't follow it.
1: You need to to put a stop in on that one.
0: I think I'm going to cut my losses.
1: Tight stop. All right. So
0: I don't really have any recommendations. I guess it's just...
1: (laughs) Next week, we'll try to come back (laughs) with stuff you should actually watch. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Send us an email. AnimalSeriesPod at gmail.com.